Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. Is this a trick question? Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten. And Chad Gross. And we're looking forward to today's interview with Dr. Liddy McGrew. In our last interview with Lydia, that's episode 084, we looked at the maximal data case for the resurrection. A lot of great insights there looking at how we can defend the resurrection while keeping a firm grasp on the historical reliability of the Gospels. But when it comes to the reliability of the Gospels, sometimes the Gospel of John gets some flack, and some would say that it's not as historically credible as the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So today we'll be looking at that with Lydia, who has written a book defending the historical reliability of the Gospel of John entitled Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as Historical Reportage. And we will link to that in our show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find us encouraging you to leave a review for the podcast if it's something you enjoy and would recommend. We don't promote it heavily, so we're relying on listeners to help share, like, subscribe, and all that. So please do. Dr. Lydia McGrew is a widely published analytical philosopher specializing in formal and classical theory of knowledge, testimony, and the philosophy of religion. She received her PhD in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995. She's the author of the widely acclaimed Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts, which defends the reliability of the New Testament using a long-neglected argument from incidental details. And we might be asking her about that today. Yes, indeed. So in addition to Lydia's book, Hidden in Plain View, she also has The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices, the one that we'll be talking about today called The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John's Historical Reportage, and one we'll be asking her about later in the interview that she's recently released called Testimonies to the Truth, and that's defending the reliability of the Gospels overall. So find those in the show notes, and we're looking forward to today's interview. So Chad, tell us what's coming up in March in Wisconsin. Yeah, so in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, on March 17th through the 19th, uh, there is actually the annual Defenders Conference, and I will have the pleasure of presenting there on uh, Jesus as the Master Thinker, and we're going to challenge some kind of charges against the Gospels for being anti-intellectual. And interestingly, the theme of the conference is actually the Doctrine of Hell, And there will be people there like Chris Date, who will be there uh, defending conditional immortality. And there will be other views represented as well. And if you want to learn more about that, go to thedefendersconference.com. Lydia has just arrived, so let's go to the interview. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Lydia McGrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I know you've been working on another project since our last interview, which was episode 084 when we talked about the case for the resurrection using maximal data. But what have you been working on, Lydia? Well, I just released my latest book. It's called Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. And so what it's doing is it's taking information about gospel reliability from my previous books and also some additional material, putting it into a really convenient Uh, and lay-friendly form, and that will include some of the material in The Eye of the Beholder that we'll be talking about today, 
The eye of the beholder can also be read by laymen, but uh, Testimonies to the Truth is a shorter book and I think is a really good way to get into the question of the reliability of the Gospels. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting into that book. And uh, yes. maybe maybe we'll have to have you back yet again. But uh, <laughs> sure. uh, today we will be talking about reliability of the Gospels in a way, because we want to go over, you know, Chad and I have been reading The Eye of the Beholder. The Gospel of John is historical reportage. And so in that book, we're talking about John as sort of a little bit different than the synoptics. And because of its differences, some in scholarship would sort of question its reliability. Can you kind of give us what you see as the landscape of how John seems to be perceived by some as maybe like in the book you put it, the redheaded stepchild of gospel scholarship? Right. Right. And I got that phrase from my, my daughter, um, Bethel, and I thought it worked really well. So the redheaded stepchild motif is a literary idea where there's one sibling in the family that just looks and acts different from everybody else. And people are questioning, why is this uh, sibling so different? And then, of course, usually the big reveal is that it's not really a member of the family at all, you know, switched at birth <laughs> or or something of that kind. OK, right. and um, with John, we find that a lot. And what's been interesting to me is to see that at different points on the scholarly spectrum, you'll still have this gap so whatever degree of historicity a scholar will assign to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there will usually be some kind of odd language used for the Gospel of John. So there's some kind of gap where John's historicity is seen as somehow different or often less. Um, and so it's sort of like when you look and say, boy, hmm, that kid sure looks different. I wonder what that's all about. And so similarly here, you'll, you'll sometimes find euphemisms like, well, John is a challenge, you know, that'll be a mm -hmm. phrase or, um, well, the synoptics are uh, theological history, emphasis on history, but John is theological history, emphasis on theological, mm -hmm. you know, and then, of course, a, a very liberal scholar will just come right out and say, John makes up a lot of stuff and, and not beat around the bush at all. But even at these various levels, there will always be some notion that there's something a little bit odd or off or shaky about John's historicity and whether it's straightforward historicity or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of points that you made in the book about the way that scholars look at John that were very eye opening, um, especially the numerous quotes that you share. Um, I really appreciated the discussion you engage in regarding this idea of scholarly consensus and John's gospel. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when you're in discussions with people and they, they want to just say, well, scholars might not agree with that or the, the consensus doesn't agree with that. So it just raises the question of what role should scholarly consensus play when one's trying to determine whether or not John is reliable or not? I would go so far as to say it should play very little role, if any. If something is really so strongly evidenced, and that's the reason for scholarly consensus, it should be possible to find that evidence and to base your view on that evidence rather than on a kind of a proxy and using mm. scholarly consensus as a proxy for argument. I think that's a, a really dangerous way to to go at things. And in particular, one one type of proxy I see is that a person will ahead of time label a certain fact as a conservative fact 
or a liberal fact. And then if you can find people whom they perceive as on the other side. So, you know, a liberal scholar, liberal labeled scholar acknowledging a so-called conservative fact. Oh, then it must have enormous evidence or a conservative label scholar acknowledging a so-called liberal fact, then there must be overwhelming evidence. And it's a very indirect way of trying to get at the truth. Um, And I think that's a bad proxy. I think within the field of New Testament scholarship, people go a lot more by what they hear said, and the discipline tends to, to hang together with some lag, you know, some people going further than others and so forth. But there's a lot more unanimity and peer group agreement there than you would think based upon these labels. And so therefore, you should not use that kind of proxy argument. You should just try to find out what the what the evidence really is. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was I was telling Brian pre-interview that it was really interesting. I recently went back and listened to your discussion with Craig Evans on Justin Brierley's Unbelievable. And it was so interesting. There were a couple of times during the discussion where you were presenting your view and he would say something along the lines you know, to Justin, well, Lydia is really out of step with with scholarly <laughs> consensus here. And and I found myself listening, going, I don't care, like <laughs> address what she said. Right. <laughs> and so right. it was just it was really interesting to see how that played out in that discussion. There were a lot of interesting things about it. One of them was that I happen to know that ahead of time, Justin said, please address each other directly instead of speaking of each other in the third person. And then we got into it and (laughs) he kept speaking of me in the third person anyway. So it was a little bit odd, but um, yeah, definitely there were, there's such a tendency to just use consensus almost as a kind of a club and to say sort of, how dare you be confident of the straight historicity of this gospel when so many scholars across the scholarly spectrum, quote unquote, view it as a challenge. And I just don't think we should be moved by that at all. Yeah, I thought the debate was very well done, by the way. Oh, thank you. I do have one more little follow up idea about scholarly consensus, and that is, doesn't that change? (laughs) You know, the scholarly consensus about the historical reliability of John during one generation, it might be, you know, all on board for it. And so don't we have to go back to the arguments themselves? Right. And I think this even relates a little bit to our previous conversation about the minimal facts and maximal Mm. data argument, because there we were talking about consensus supposedly acknowledging, you know, sort of conservative labeled facts. But if you get to rely upon that, what if that were rejected label later? Yeah. You know, and here we see something similar. I think what's happened socially in Johannine studies as well as in gospel studies and apologetics generally is that there's been somewhat of a shift on the really liberal side uh, in certain directions. So, for example, a while back, John was dated in the second century. And that's mm. not as much anymore. You know, even even among liberal scholars, you won't find as many of them saying, yeah, it was written in the year 150 AD or something. And so then it's easy to get a little bit excited about that and to say, we got to go. We got to go out to meet them in a sense. You know, if, mm-hmm. if the liberal scholars are shifting in our direction, we should be willing to sort of shift in their direction and come to some kind of agreement or something. And there's really no reason for that. We should just stick with what is well-evidenced and not get overexcited about slight shifts such as, okay, now they date it to the late first century instead of the mid-100s. 
that is no sign for making any sort of compromise beyond what the evidence actually grants. Mm-hmm. The idea that I was sharing with Chad prior to the interview was, I would like to know, is there a way to determine uh, how scholars come to their view when they land in the consensus? Did the consensus create their view or did their view create the consensus? It's like a chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you pigeonhole them all for 10 years while they were doing their studies and they weren't influenced by the consensus, would they all come out with the same view? Or or, or is this sort of like everyone kind of like, uh, you know, popularity contest? Oh, I'll believe what this guy believes because I like him better or something. There's a tremendous amount of that that goes on. And here's what, what I see as a kind of a chain reaction. So, you know, you have scholar A who believes something, let's say, for example, that Scholar A is is labeled an evangelical, and then he comes to believe that John moved the temple cleansing. Let's take that for an example, okay? Mm -hmm. Moved the temple cleansing from the end to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So then along comes Scholar B, who's also an evangelical by label, and notices that Scholar A has done this. And he says, wow, there must be really strong arguments Because you would normally think of that view as a little more liberal. So if Scholar A, who's viewed as an evangelical, thinks it must be overwhelming arguments. It's like one of those proxy things, right? So Scholar B comes to endorse John Move, the temple cleansing. Along comes Scholar C, also evangelical labeled. And he says, wow, both Scholar A and Scholar B think that John moved the temple cleansing, and they're both evangelicals. The arguments must be really strong. And so then Scholar C endorses it, and you can see how this is not an independent set of beliefs, and you're just sort of, it's like each person kind of attaching himself to the end of the conga line or something, Um, (laughs) and then everybody getting more and more impressed as they see how long the line is, and none of these are independent (laughs) judgments. Yeah, well... (laughs) And that's that's one reason I mean, uh, some would say it's a criticism, but I think it's a strength when you come to the table with your view and your assessment of historical reliability as an epistemologist rather than, oh, I've I'm just uh, buried my head in New Testament studies for the past number of decades. You come at it with a view of like, what reasons do we have to see this is true or not? And so I think that perspective is useful in like avoiding those pitfalls of majority consensus or things like that. Now, a follow up question here would be, you know, if some scholars, even those who do call themselves evangelical, if they're questioning the historicity of John, then in your view, how how do they determine what they think is historical? If they're saying, well, you know, John, I guess we'll take the stuff that agrees with, uh, if it agrees with the synoptics, we'll take it. But if it looks like it's just like a, uh, a long monologue that surely you couldn't have remembered that, then, then we'll ditch it. I mean, what are the sort of... How are they doing that? Forgive me for interrupting, but if I could Go just ahead. piggyback on that, because it goes with what Brian's saying. I mean, this is kind of like that idea that you have in the book, right, about um, uh, the smorgasbord approach. It, it does appear like what is it that when, when you start saying that some of these things really didn't happen or some of these things were just the the author expounding on what they think Jesus meant when you start doing that, like at what point do you know what's historical and what's not? Right. Well, multiple attestation is a very popular thing, but it's part of this overall 
idea, which is the criteriological approach. And in, uh, I believe it was chapter eight of The Eye of the Beholder, I devoted a chapter to that. So we've had several quests for the historical Jesus, as you know, of course, you know, first quest, second quest, third quest. And mm-hmm. in each of these, the idea was, well, even if these documents are unreliable, how can we sort of go in there as miners and mine out the nuggets of historicity from them by using what are called criteria of authenticity. Now, what I find is that even relatively conservative scholars are often adopting a version of the criteriological approach, not maybe the most skeptical version of it, but a version of it where basically every incident, maybe even separate verses within incidents, especially if Jesus is speaking, Uh, different sayings, has to justify itself separately. So we're not allowing ourselves to get a holistic view of this is what the author is like, this is what he's doing, and that's how we can have confidence that he is telling the truth or that kind of a thing. Even when we're not talking about miracles, I'm not talking about miracles. I'm just, there's nothing miraculous about Jesus saying everyone who is of the truth hears my voice or something like that. That's not a miracle. It's just him saying it to Pilate, you know, right? But each and every one has to fulfill some one of these criteria, this, you know, list of rules of thumb. Maybe it's uh, multiply attested or maybe it's got it's a criterion of embarrassment or whatever it might be, criterion of Palestinian background and so forth. Then we'll we'll allow that. We move on to the next passage, the next saying, and we take our dial, we reset it to agnosticism. So we'll just say, well, if it doesn't have anything special about it, scholars cannot know, historians cannot know, or even a better phrase, or I'm not saying it's better, but more common phrase would be, as historians, we cannot know. Notice as historians as opposed to as Christians. So then we end up with this split Like, well, maybe as a Christian, you believe this because you believe it's the word of God or something, you know, but as a historian, you know, we have to have our integrity and therefore we have to be agnostic about whether that's historical or not. Now, I just think that's that's a terrible evidential way to approach any Mm. document. I mean, I think this would be not a good way to approach a secular document either, because a secular document, if it's written by, especially if it's written by one author, it's not written by a committee or something. Um, and and John is clearly written by one author. And, and it's interesting here because all the talk about Johannine's style, which we may talk about later, is a really good evidence that it's it's written by a single mind. You know, I mean, if it's got this unity of style, then let's carry that over to the unity of the author's intentions. And then when we have evidence that he's trying to be careful and he's trying to be truthful, then we should allow ourselves to draw, to use induction and also to use inference to the best explanation and say, what kind of person is this? What is he, what is his approach? And to draw the conclusion that his approach is not to change anything deliberately or make anything up deliberately. And and so I think that's a much better and more psychologically plausible and more epistemologically principled 
approach than that smorgasbord approach where we say, hey, you know, we're going to take a little bit of a made up thing here and a little bit of uh, historicity there. And I'll, I'll have a bit of the, you know, oh, gratin potatoes over here. It's, yeah. it's not a it's not a reasonable way to really approach a single document. Yeah. And I'd, I'd just say to listeners, for those who have heard views, you know, that I would say are kind of of the smorgasbord like, uh, say, from someone like a Lycona or uh, Craig Evans, who who I've learned things from those men. But um, I think Dr. McGrew does a great job dealing with that in her book. And so if you want to learn more about that, check it out. When you were talking about as a historian, I think this and I can only say such and such. When it comes down to finding out what the truth is about reality versus what I can justify in a historical book, um, should we keep our tools in silos or should we should we be looking at all the data? I mean, for instance, should my belief mm. that God exists inform my assessment or my evaluation of like the reliability of, of John? You know, or should I be should I be like, no, no, I've got to keep that that personal belief shouldn't influence what I think about John. I mean, for instance, is my belief inform me and would that be okay? Or should I isolate that because it is, are you skewing your views that way? Well, in the, in the end, we have to have what a, a formal epistemologist would call a, a coherent probability distribution. Okay. That's you know, what I was can, trying to say. There you go. I'm sure that was, it was on the tip of your tongue, right? Yeah. No, but I mean, in the end, you're going to, you're, you're going to want to be consistent and coherent. You've got all of your, your different pieces of evidence coming into play, right? Or else you're going to have a split mind. I did a presentation for the defend conference i did it virtually and that so that was in new orleans i was here in michigan but they they had me set up with a camera and so forth it was called criteria of authenticity in the integrated mind or something like that and i was talking about exactly this question we've got to have an integrated mind we don't want to be like the old averroists you may remember in the history of ideas Mm. the averroists said there were two truths you know they were averroes was a muslim scholar so there's the you know religious truth, and then there's the objective or scientific truth, and these can even be in contradiction with one another, and that's not good, right? So we get this kind of epistemological averroism, which is, this is what I can say as a Christian, this is what I can say as a historian. I think it's a very bad idea. Now, that being said, there's nothing wrong with taking certain portions of your probability distribution and saying, suppose this were all I had, hypothetically. What would it support? And then take, you know, another portion and say, supposing this were all I had hypothetically, what would it support? I think sometimes you can even do useful diachronic models where you say, well, suppose I got this piece of evidence and then I got this piece of evidence and you kind of build it like that, like Mm -hmm. a tower, you know, and, and where would I end up? The interesting thing I would say about John's reliability and actually that of the other Gospels as well is that even if we only consider a portion of our evidence, we can see lots of reasons to hold it to be reliable. Like, I I don't Mm. believe that I need to even bring into play my belief that God exists to argue that John is reliable because there are so many of these. I mean, in the end, yes, I'm going to bring it all in together. But there are so many of these things like external confirmations, undesigned coincidences, the appearance of 
witness testimony, that vividness that John has and so forth, where I can say, man, you know, this just really looks like someone who was close to the facts. And I and that's not even per se a religious conclusion. But um, certainly in the end, we got it. We got to bring it all in. We got to bring it all together. And what has often bothered me is that I can I can exchange a whole email exchange with someone and I'll say right at the beginning, I'm not seeing this because I'm a Christian. And you'll find him three emails later telling me I'm just saying it because I'm a Christian. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, feel, I told you at the beginning, you know, I'm not saying this because of a theological, you know, were you, were you not listening to what I was actually saying? I was actually bringing historical reasons and historical arguments and you, you need to face that. I would also say the same thing, by the way, about harmonization of the Gospels. I harmonize, you know, interviews about the Holocaust that I might read, even though it's secular. So mm-hmm. when we harmonize the Gospels, we're not harmonizing it because we're Christians. We're harmonizing because that's actually a really responsible historical tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In regard to historicity, you, you argue in the book that John is fully historical. And I find that when we're talking about what it means to be historical, there's a lot of misconceptions. Uh, people say, well, do you mean John's inerrant? Do you mean that if we went back in time and we were um, standing there that we would hear Jesus saying the very words that are in red in our Bibles? Um, so when you say that John's fully historical, can you kind of unpack what you mean by that? Right. So first, there's the question of how that fits with inerrancy, which is a really good question we need to clear the air with. I sometimes do a Venn diagram with that. So you've got, you know, reportage or what I call, you know, full historicity out here. Um, and that's your larger part of the Venn diagram. And then you've got traditional inerrancy completely contained within that. But you've also got space, uh, if you can sort of picture this, uh, outside of inerrancy that's still inside of reportage. So what that means is traditional inerrancy entails reportage, but reportage doesn't entail traditional inerrancy. So Mm. the way that I will put this is the reportage model says that the gospel authors are always trying to get it right and that they are highly successful at doing so. So what this means is that if there are any errors, they are good faith errors. They're the, and they're the kinds of errors that we can imagine someone who really knows his stuff and who's always trying to get, never lying, uh, never making stuff up. But nonetheless, we can imagine him making. And there might not be any errors. So an inerrantist can certainly assert that he, in fact, I think an inerrant, a traditional inerrantist has to adopt the reportage model. You know, that, that's just going to fall, drop right out of inerrancy. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it includes more than just inerrancy. So that, you know, we don't want inerrancy to be sort of a stalking horse or a red herring, like, oh, you're just, you're just defending inerrancy. I'm, I'm defending something that is broader than inerrancy, but that definitely excludes any invention on their part. Now, as far as exact words... And that's something you, you find in this book. You also will find it in The Mirror or the Mask. I talk about different uses of the term paraphrase. Yes. It's a very important concept. And so what I'm talking about is recognizable paraphrase. So I would say if we would go back and into that time and we had a videotape or something, and let's suppose that 
I understood whatever language Jesus is speaking at the time, whether it's mm-hmm. Greek, whether it's Aramaic, whatever. I fully, I understand that language. I can hear it and just get it. And I'm standing there and I'm listening. I would be able to recognize, like if I'm familiar with what we have in the Gospel of John, I would be able to say, oh, you know, that that must be what I call the bread of life discourse or whatever. And look here, he is actually in the synagogue at Capernaum, just like John said, you know, hmm. after the feeding of the 5,000. So the setting is recognizable. What he's saying is recognizable. But you can read the bread of life discourse in a very short period of time. So it was probably longer than that. And then I could say, yeah. oh, this is cool. He said this other stuff. And, you know, it's. It's not going to be, even supposing he was speaking Greek, he might have been speaking Aramaic, but even suppose he was speaking Greek, sure, you can have, you know, synonyms being used or a little bit of summary being made here or there, but it's still close enough that I can recognize and say, this is that discourse that's reported in John at that time. So both the context and the content are recognizable. And I think that would be included in full historicity. Hmm, that's helpful. You know, in, in kind of piggybacking off of that question, when I think of full historicity, one of the things that Bart Ehrman is very fond of pointing out is we have no idea who wrote the, the Gospels. And uh, first of all, he s- seems to think that this somehow cast doubt on their reliability. You know, like even if I granted that argument and said, OK, let's say we don't. He seems to think that, you know calls cast great doubt on their reliability. But but I guess my question is, is two part. Uh, first of all, do imagine if we didn't know who it was when we're talking about John, would that cast doubt on the reliability of it? And then secondly, do we have any good reasons to believe that it actually was the Apostle John? Right. So a lot of times when people say, suppose you didn't know X, what I like to say is, well, while we're supposing what do you know instead in this imaginary scenario? And I think it's a very helpful way to think. Hmm. So when Bart says we have no idea, I believe that what Bart is insinuating there is that it could have been someone who was many, what I call many removes from what happened. Okay. Right. And you, he loves that telephone game metaphor, of he, course. He, you know, he just yes. loves it. You know, one guy... A tells B and B tells C and C tells Z and it gets corrupted and so forth. <laughs> and and now, how many people have corrected him on that now? I think right, that, oh, exactly. But, it, but anyway, so that phrase, we have no idea. If what we mean by we have no idea is that we've got a decently high probability that it was the result of a telephone game, then yeah, in that sense of we have no idea, it would cast doubt on historicity, sure, because instead of thinking that it's an eyewitness or instead of giving that a high probability, we're setting that probability of it being an eyewitness low. So if you set the probability of it being an eyewitness low, then, you know, or even of it being maybe, let's say, one removed from an eyewitness and you're like, nah, that's not the way it is. Sure. Then you're going to doubt. Then you're going to doubt reliability. So we've got to say, what do we mean by uh, we have no idea? And then, um, you know, the the second part of your question is, what reason do we have to think that it is written by the Apostle John? And I would say we have we have overwhelming reason, Mm. um, both external and internal. Now, in some ways, reliability is evidence that it is 
a disciple of Jesus. And then external evidence that it's a disciple of Jesus leads us to expect reliability. So these things are mutually relevant. And we, what we have is independent evidence on both of those sides. We've got independent evidence that it is reliable. They can be checked in other ways. And then we've got independent evidence that it was written by a disciple of Jesus. You know, the external evidence is very strong. It, it's unanimous. I mean, this is what's interesting. We do not have a single church father or external source that questions, you know, if they address the question at all, sometimes they don't, sure. but if they address the question at all, the questions that this was written by an apostle of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And most of the time when they address it, they will address it that his name was John. Now, at that point, we do get that those divergent lines. And, you know, I have an appendix to it on yes. this other John theory, right? Mm-hmm. Richard Balcom's other John. Even then, though, he believes this was the beloved disciple. He was a disciple of Jesus named John. Mm. You know, it's, it's sort of like that old joke, you know, Homer didn't write Homer. It was another guy by the same name, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, another ancient Greek poet named Homer, you know, but it makes somewhat of a difference, but uh, not all, all that much. So overwhelmingly it's disciple, personal disciple, beloved disciple, and his name was John. Now, I also believe that um, the evidence is very strong that it was specifically John, the son of Zebedee, but I put that off to to the appendix to argue. Um, right. But if we had this kind of evidence externally for a, a secular document, I believe that any responsible historian would just take it as established. In fact, it's a, mm. it's a wealth of evidence that we often don't have for uh, secular historical documents as far as relatively close to the time attestation of a highly specific author. So, yeah, it is it is actually very strong. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. That's super helpful. Well, a question um, comes to my mind is about evidence that John is uh, uh, written by John. One would be the similarity in the voice of John and, say, in the Gospel of John versus the epistles of John. So I'm wondering how we might reconcile that idea of the voice of Jesus that you hear in the, in the Gospel of John when you compare it to the epistles. One could say that they sound familiar, hence it's evidence that it's you know, John's gospel is more the more John speaking than Jesus. So, you know, you could use it for reliability or you could use it against it. Uh, how do you see that? Mm-hmm. Well, and I've, I've already brought up one way in which you can use it for reliability that we're seeing this as the product of, of one man's mind. And that's important because you will hear scholars talk about this being written by the Johannine community. And I can't remember who it is, it might be D.A. Carson, who says something like, I'm convinced that com- committees don't write anything but reports. Or is this great, <laughs> this great saying, you know, communities don't write things. Um, so, and that's, that's useful because then we say, okay, he is a, a single man and who, who is he and what's he like and what does he care about? Especially when we look at the claims that he makes for himself. This argues for reliability. I think we need to take those seriously. So, for example, in John 19, 35, he says, he who saw it bore record and his record is true. And he knows that what he is saying is true. To put a little asterisk there by the word truth and say, nah, he thought it was okay for him to make up stuff that Jesus said. It's like, what you know, 
where are you getting evidence for that? You know, there's a burden of proof there that when this guy says, I'm telling you the truth, I was there and I saw this, we need to take that seriously. And mm-hmm. I don't think the uh, the arguments for an asterisk uh, uh, by the word truth there can can bear that burden of proof. So that's one part of it. But you are quite right, Brian, that that similarity of voice has been used as an argument against reliability, like it's suspicious somehow. Now, this gets us into the whole question of what do we mean by yoanine idiom and so forth. And one way that I of the beholder is unique that I hope your your listeners will will take away. I think the eye of the beholder spends more space. I spend at least three chapters. Uh, in different ways, addressing that argument from quote unquote Yohanine idiom to unreliability more than any other book I can think of, uh, published or unpublished. You know, I mean, mm. uh, in print or out of print is what I'm mm. saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because it's so popular. And so I come at it from like every possible angle. And I'm going to be the one monologuing here for too long if I, t- if I try to get into that too much. But A short answer would be, I think John learned to talk like Jesus rather than John making Jesus talk like John. Hmm. Within the parameters of that recognizable paraphrase, not embellishing, not elaborating that I was talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. um, I really think that John is uh, reporting what Jesus really recognizably said and even, I think, how he recognizably sounded. One bit of evidence for this that we really need to to notice, and again, uh, D.A. Carson mentions this in a really good article that I highlight several times in the book. I think it's called Jesus and the Fourth Gospel After Dodd What, if I'm remembering the title of it, and it's available for free online. Uh, and so he, he mentions this, but I'm really hammering on this, and it's the evidence of what are called asides. So an aside, as you know, in a play is where someone will stop and he'll just start addressing the audience, right? So, you know, Hamlet will suddenly start addressing the audience. What we find is a lot in John, there's, there's one in Mark as well. So there are a couple in the synaptics where the narrator will address the reader directly. So the narrator just suddenly starts talking or explaining what's going on. John does this pretty often. And what he does in his asides is he explains what Jesus meant. And Mm. this is so significant with respect to that question you were bringing up about, you know, Jesus sounds too much like John in 1 John or John as the narrator. Because if he felt that he was licensed to take his own interpretations and put them in Jesus' mouth and make it look like Jesus historically said it, but because, you know, hey, he thinks he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it's all fine. Um, and I'm sure this is what Jesus really meant. And I just want to tell you more, but I'm going to make Jesus say it like Jesus, a character, like Jesus is almost a character of his creation. If he felt like that, why would he stop and distinguish his own voice and in his own voice tell you what Jesus meant? Hmm. He would just have put it in Jesus' mouth, right? And we find this repeatedly. So, for example, when Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles says, he that believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will come rivers of living water. 
the narrator speaks directly to the audience and says, this he said concerning the spirit, for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he doesn't make Jesus tell you explicitly that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. He tells you that he as narrator believes Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit. This is evidence that John is scrupulous about distinguishing between his own ideas and his own interpretations and what Jesus historically said. So I think that just cuts right yeah. through that whole idea that the sound of Jesus is evidence against reliability. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, because if it were he making it up, he would have, why would you do an aside? Why don't you just include it in the narrative itself if you wanted to shape it that way? In other words, if it was fake, he'd have to make up that sort of the aside as well. Like, it's really. Well, and, and he could have just had Jesus say it. Yeah, right? yeah. He could have just had Je- Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit a lot in the Gospel of John. It's not like he's you know squeamish about talking about the Holy Spirit, but here Jesus doesn't. He doesn't explicitly talk about the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so, why doesn't John quote unquote make or quote unquote have Jesus at that point say, "For the Spirit shall come, but He cannot come yet, for I am not yet glorified." You know, just have him say that, right? Yeah. But he doesn't. Lydia, how much of like when we're looking at the Gospels and in this case, the Gospel of John, can we say, well, if it was made up, would we expect this? And if it was true, would we expect this? Is that sort of like one of the methods you can kind of determine the truthfulness or, you know, the soundness of, of, a, of a passage? I think it's helpful. It is an, a probabilistic argument. Obviously, it's not going to be deductive, right? Like, boom, you know, now it's absolute. Even that argument I just gave is probabilistic, but I think it's a pretty good probabilistic argument. So, yes, I think so. An author that I think is is very good at helping us to do this is Leon Morris. It is uh, mm. now out of print, but I think you could still get it uh, used. His book, stud- I think it's out of print, uh, Studies in the Fourth Gospel. And he brings in a lot of really good stuff like that, where he says, would you expect this if it were made up? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and he often quotes a commentator uh, named F.L. Godet, G-O-D-E-T, who's really good at that, too. So these are really useful ways of looking at it. And sometimes you'll find that gospel scholars will have it exactly turned on its head. So since I published the Eye of the Beholder, I read an article by, um, I think it is Dodd, about the appearances of the risen Jesus, an essay in form criticism. And he literally says that if there are these vivid, specific, unnecessary details in a, in a scene, in a passage, that's an argument that it was invented. And it's like exactly the opposite. Hmm. You know, hmm. it's like, no, yeah. if, if there's this unnecessary little detail in there that an eyewitness would have noticed, that's evidence that it's not invented. So that shows you part of the reason why I'm so negative about scholarly consensus, because yeah. you have these big, extremely highly respected scholars. And it's like they've got their standards upside down, really, hmm. for evaluating historicity. Hmm. I wanted to ask you, if a few years back, I attended a debate between David Wood and Shabir Ali. And uh, Shabir, the kind of the crux of Shabir Ali's argument was this idea that the Gospel of John, of course, is the latest of the four Gospels. And we have kind of this, the strongest claims of Jesus to his deity there, thinking about John 8, 58, 1030. 
And he, of course, tries to argue that this is evidence that the gospel somehow evolved over time. And the reason that, and of course, I'm phrasing his argument, the reason that John is so different from the synoptics is because it's late and it and it kind of evolved and that there's not multiple attestation for these claims. And so, in other words, the testimony doesn't exist in any other source. So does this, should this raise doubt in the, in the mind of a, a kind of a, like a faithful Bible reader? I don't think so. And I think a big, a big reason is to recognize that this is a very weak argument from silence against testimony. Hmm. So, um, you know, suppose that two drivers in your family come home by the same route and they come home one evening and one of them comes in and simply doesn't mention that there was an accident on that road. And, you know, he goes off and does something else. And then another driver in your family comes and says, oh, my goodness, there was this big accident, you know, on on such and such a road on the way home. Is the fact that the first person didn't mention it a good argument for you to say to the second person, now you must be making that up because so-and-so came in and he didn't mention it. Mm. It's terrible, terrible argument, right? Yeah. It's not just even that it's an argument from silence. Some arguments from silence can work. If I say, you know, there's probably not a tiger in my living room right now because I don't see one. You could regard that as an argument from silence, right? Tiger's kind of a big creature. I think I would see one if it were here, but it's an argument against, it's being used against testimony from someone Mm. that you have reason to believe is testifying correctly. So I often wonder with skeptics and people like Shabir Ali and, and Bart Ehrman as well, it's his favorite, where would they be? Without the argument from silence, it's it's like it's their yeah. it's their precious, you know, my precious, yeah. you know, it's their favorite <laughs> argument, right? So I think it's a I think it's very weak. And Bart will push this sort of like someone forcing a card, you know, like like here, take it, you know, and and he'll say, surely he loves that word, sure, surely <laughs> if Jesus had said these things, the synoptics would mention it. And I I think we need to say Bart. Don't call me Shirley, you know. Um, so, you know, no, you know, you can't assume that they had an agenda where the synoptic sat down and said, now we each of them said, I want to be certain that uh, I put in here whatever Jesus said that is the very strongest thing I can think of that he could have said to show that he was God. And I'll put this thing in and, you know. I haven't heard of anything stronger than that. And then the next synoptic author comes around and says, I want to put in the strongest thing that shows that Jesus said he was God. And this is the strongest thing I know of. You know, like they're all independently for one thing. Mm. The synoptics, I I don't think they're completely dependent on one another at all. They do have some independence, but they're to some extent following each other in their selection of material. You Mm. know, so um, there is some dependence there as far as what they're choosing to report. And I think John is sometimes deliberately reporting things because they weren't reported in the synaptics. And he's like, hey, guys, you know, you missed this. Let's let's be sure Mm. to say this, you know. Um, But also, I don't think they had that agenda. Sometimes they were more focused on arguing that Jesus was the Messiah, you know, like that Mm -hmm. is bigger than specifically arguing that he was God, etc. All that being said. There is high Christology in the synoptics as well. Yes. It's not quite as explicit. I don't think we should say, ah, we don't need John. Let's not depend. I hate when people do that. Let's not yes. depend on John. It's controversial. You know, I'm not going to do that. But there is there is some high Christology there. There's Matthew baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's right there at the end of Matthew. 
There's Mark. Jesus says he can forgive sins. You know, there's back again to Matthew. They say, tell the children to be silent in the temple. This is one of my favorites. I got this from my friend, Jonathan McClatchy. And Jesus said, didn't you ever read out of the mouth of babes? You have ordained praise. Hmm. And that's Psalm 8. You look at Psalm 8. Well, who's being praised? It's God, you know? And so they're telling him to silence the children in the temple. You know, they're offended because they're saying Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus like, I'll see you and raise you five. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I've ordained praise out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. So there's, you know, it, it, it's an exaggerated uh, gap anyway. So there are mm-hmm. a lot of answers to that argument. Okay. Some might look at John and see the long prayers or the monologues of Jesus and think, well, doesn't that sort of narrative suggest that maybe some of the, even some of these times when he was alone, you know, who would have recorded that? Or, hey, this really long form monologue that, of course, has been written much later than the synoptics. Does that give us some reason to think it could have been embellished by John? In other words, you've got all this new content in long form. And that makes people nervous. Why should we trust that when that's so different? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this gets brought up and it gets it gets mashed together with that something, something, yo, idiom, something, something long. You know, it's like mm-hmm. all gets put together. Right. So one thing that I point out in the book is that there's something of a myth here. The longest uninterrupted speech of Jesus in the Gospels is the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually not anything in John. So Mm. it's not even true that Jesus appears to speak for longer uninterrupted in John than anywhere in the synoptics. So that gets kind of that gets kind of missed um, sometimes. Another thing is that, of course, even that high priestly prayer in John 17, after Jesus finishes, it says something like after he finished these sayings, he went out with his disciples across the, the brook Kidron. So he's he's actually with them. He's not even alone, you know, when he's portrayed as saying that. Hmm. Uh, Another point is that he's often interrupted. Many of these things that are labeled as long discourses are actually dialogues. So, you know, even in the bread of life discourse, you know, they're grumbling against him why does this man say, I came down from heaven, we know who his father and mother were, you know, that kind of thing. So, or in the, uh, in the farewell discourse, all of a sudden, you know, you'll have, uh, I think it's Philip saying, show us the father and it suffices us. Or no, we don't know where you're going, you know, says Thomas, and how can we know the way? So there are these bits of dialogue that are occurring interspersed. So they're not as, as uninterrupted as I think scholars sometimes suggest. I think what underlies some of this is this notion that nobody could have remembered that much stuff. And I think mm. that comes in. It, it's seldom said, actually, in just those words. But I think it's in the back of people's minds, you know, that whether it's a dialogue or whether it's a monologue, how could how could anybody have remembered that much material? And so mm. I think that's part of it. And one thing we should remember there is that I don't think John sat around for 40 years and didn't review any of this stuff, and then suddenly just started spouting this stuff, right? right? I think he was reviewing it from early on. I think he was preaching it from early on. I think he was talking about it. And that's often thought of as uh, helping to get 
the tradition out there to other people, but it also helps to fix it in the mind of the person himself who's remembering it. So I think when we put together moderate, recognizable paraphrase and John reviewing it from an early time period and, you know, fixing it in his mind, and then just the possibility of quite a good oral memory. Just, I think John did have a quite a good auditory memory. I think it is actually quite, quite plausible that he could have remembered these in a recognizable form and they could have then made it accurately into his gospel. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you point out in the book, and it also came up in your debate with a New Testament scholar, Craig Evans, whom we've referenced before, is that he, he actually claims that when Jesus is uttering the kind of what's, you know, the I am sayings in John, that he's, he's speaking much like an allegorical character. He even seems to doubt whether or not Jesus actually uttered things such as I and the father am one or before Abraham was I am. Can you talk about kind of what are the what are the consequences of that view and how how you would challenge them? Right. So I think we should acknowledge that if that's the case, it is really an unreliable gospel. And it's interesting Mm. when you go to that place uh, in that video debate, it's on Bart Ehrman's YouTube channel. So you can see it. You can see the whole context. I'm not taking anything out of context. Um, After Dr. Evans says this, Bart Ehrman, not one to miss an opportunity, says, so if you don't think the gospel of John is reliable, what gospel do you think is reliable? Okay. And Mm. the audience laughs, you know, and uh, Dr. Evans says, now I disagree with you saying that it's that John isn't reliable. It's like it's like you saying that parable Jesus told you know, isn't reliable. If something isn't exactly historical, then how can it fail to be historically reliable? Now, notice what Dr. Evans is doing. This is his defense. Yeah. Quote, unquote. I'm making air quotes here. You guys can see my hearers can't hear. This is his defense of John is, is not to say, oh, no, no, you misunderstood me. He's actually very historically reliable. It's to say it's not really in the historical genre. So, Bart, you're applying the wrong character. Uh, category. Well, I think that's quite an admission. Agreed. You know, this is no longer a, a historical primary source then for the for the life of Jesus. So it, it has serious consequences. Now, does that automatically mean it's wrong? No, but it does mean that we shouldn't accept this theory just kind of casually because it's a low stakes issue. It's a pretty high stakes issue. Secondly, Jesus doesn't look at all like an allegorical character when he does that. It's a terrible, terrible argument. So I just alluded to the bread of life discourse. I've mentioned that a few times here. John locates very specifically where that takes place. Now, this is a discourse based on an I am saying with a predicate. And almost more than any other part of the gospel, Dr. Evans has multiple places cast out on those uh, I am saying with predicates. He even says, if you went back with a video camera, you would not find him saying, I am this and I am that. Mm-hmm. So like, I am the bread of life in this case. What happens? Well, John says it's in the Capernaum synagogue, specific place. Go back and read the Lady Wisdom sections in um, in the Wisdom of Sirach, you know, even those uh, uh, apocryphal books in Proverbs, etc., you will never find the author saying, 
that Lady Wisdom is at this highly specific location. You know, maybe she's at the crossroads or something. You're completely vague, mm-hmm. right? She had the yeah. place where two ways meet, right? But John is placing Jesus historically in a historical location. Second, you find the people around who are even referring to Jesus' ancestry. Is this not the son of the carpenter? And, and you know, we know his family. How then does he say, I came down from heaven? That never mm-hmm. happens to Lady Wisdom. Because she's an allegorical character. She doesn't have ancestors, right? So nothing could look less allegorical than all of this. And I also have a really uh, helpful quotation from Jack Collins, the Old Testament scholar, John C. Collins, that he gave me permission to quote, which is that just to say, you know, ego e me is is not a particularly lady wisdomish way of talking. You know, there may be, and, and Dr. Collins thinks there probably are even more than I would think there are, some places where Jesus himself deliberately uh, alludes to some of the sayings of Lady Wisdom, but not in some kind of suspicious way, as if a historical character suddenly started quoting the entire to be or not to be soliloquy from uh, Hamlet or something, right? He might make a allusion here or there, but it's not as though he's being portrayed as a fictional character. John just clearly isn't doing that. That's helpful. Very good. All right, Lydia, I've got a question about reliability. You mentioned there that little quote you were saying, well, is, is the parable, is Jesus' parable true or true or is it reliable? Um, and it brought to the mind this idea that like things like parables could be passed along without using the same words or the, you know, the exact same phrases, but the idea and the message remains, even though you could change the words around, for instance. And I'm wondering, when we think about gospel reliability, are we being maybe too propositional when we talk about something being true, like true or false or accurate or not accurate? And I remember a book that I read about um, by Mark D. Roberts, Can We Trust the Gospels? And in there, he's got, and maybe now we're overlapping with (laughs) your most recent work, but uh, Uh he's got like uh, four different portraits of Jesus. And one's like in watercolor, another one's in colored pencil, another's pen and ink, another's charcoal. And sort of his question there, if I remember correctly, is, you know, which one of these is a true portrait? And... You know, it's kind of like the wrong category of question. They're all portraits. They're all representations, but they're all different sort of styles and bringing out different facets. I wonder, does that help us when we're looking at the difference between the Gospel of John and the synoptics? Maybe they have different goals, trying to bring out different features of the account. Well, yes and no. On the one hand, if that's all you mean, that they're maybe selecting their material differently. Sure, you know, that's fine because you can make a selection and and write material that is uh, completely, I should say, propositionally true, okay? Um, and they can all be propositionally true and just be selecting different things. I think that can lead to, for example, the fact that we have statistically more places where Jesus mentions testimony or truth or something like that in John because John's just making a different selection from reality because he's interested in those themes. Um, Obviously, if I'm talking to my auto mechanic, I'm going to use different words than if I'm talking to you about the Gospel of John. So sure, if that's all we mean is selection, then that can be helpful. 
On the other hand, I do find that that kind of language about portraits and, oh, you know, what do we mean by true and all that kind of thing, it makes me a little concerned and a little cautious because I find that that kind of way of talking is often used as what I might call a gateway drug to the downplaying of literal propositional historicity. And so people get sort of softened up and they think something very harmless is being said. You know, it's sort of like what I said at the beginning, I was talking about John as the redheaded stepchild. We, we get all of these vague statements, all of these euphemisms. John is different. John is a portrait. Let's not get too propositional about our concept of truth, etc. I even had someone criticize my book, The Mirror or the Mask, on that ground because he said, well, it's not a mirror or a mask. It's a portrait. And mm. so it's a portrait. They're allowed to change some things, right? They're, they're allowed to sort of airbrush out some things and so forth. And so that was being used, actually, to give a, a kind of an entryway to the idea of the gospel authors actually changing facts. So I would challenge if someone says that, I would ask exactly what do you mean by that? And because if what the person means, and I haven't read, I haven't read Roberts' book, so I don't know. But as long as the person remains in the realm of generalizations, then I'm not sure what he means. I'm going to ask that person, get down and give me, get down and give me some examples. Okay. And, you know, let's, let's take a, let's take an example. Would John changing the time when Jesus cleansed the temple and making it be different than the time when it really happened, would that fall into, you know, Mr. Uh, Dr. Roberts, would that fall into what you would say is allowable because after all, it's a portrait um, or not? Yes or no. And so, I, you know, as a philosopher, I'm not averse to pinning people down. And I think sometimes yeah. it's a really good thing to to pin people down and make them come down to to brass tacks and be concrete. So there can be harmless things meant by that. And then there can be more problematic things that are meant by that. In your book, using the reportage model, I think for me, that is most helpful in, in looking at, okay, what is the author trying to do here and how is he trying to do it? And if that's what he's trying to do, what evidence that we have that we can rely on him from all the different things we can confirm? And uh, if he were trying to make it up, he wouldn't be doing it this way. You know, um, that whole paradigm of looking at it through a reportage model, he's just trying to give you a true account of what happened and pretty clear that he was there to to see it <laughs> and that he is who he says he is. I think that for me makes the most sense of John. Right. It's an inference to the best explanation. And it's interesting because those who, who disagree with my reportage model, they have a model. You know, it's not like mm. they don't have a model. I just don't think it's as maybe it might be a, a consistently um, inventive model if it's a more skeptical scholar, or it might be this kind of very mixed, very inconsistent model if it's a, a scholar with a sort of a more smorgasbord or nuggets approach, but they have a model. So there can't be anything wrong with saying, what kind of book is this? What genre is this? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think I need to be able to draw that kind of conclusion as well. And so like, sometimes I'm uh, someone will use a phrase like you're being too black and white or you're being too this or you're being too that. It's like I, I'm drawing the conclusion that I think is justified by the evidence that I have all these different confirmations about what kind of book this is. We're all 
drawing conclusions about what kind of book this is. And this is the kind of book I think it is that I think he never, never deliberately changed anything or made anything up. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, too, that when I and when I picked up the New Testament and I started reading it before I knew anything about, you know, New Testament criticism or uh, any of the arguments we're talking about today or whatnot. Now, this certainly doesn't make it true. But when you read John um, prima facie, I mean, it appears to be a reportage model. I mean, I, 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 I and so I think there is something to the fact that, OK, well, if it appears to be a reportage model, then I, I need some good reasons to doubt that. It is right. A burden. Where's the burden of proof? And how do we how do we satisfy that burden of proof to say it's something else? And when people tell stories about themselves like that, sometimes you'll get some really weird stories and you'll say, really, you were that, you know, that stupid. Like I I heard (laughs) one scholar, he did a, you know, I was once really naive when I was a new Christian story where he literally claimed that he thought that. After, you know, he read Matthew and then he read Mark and then he read Luke, that Jesus was born, you know, twice and that Jesus died on the cross four different times as if the Gospels were sequential. And I mean, I don't want to call him a liar, but this was obviously setting up a boy was I did I used to be naive and stupid and now we know better and we're so much more nuanced and I could hardly believe that anybody would be really that stupid. I mean, maybe he was, but I think <laughs> what you've just what you've just portrayed as your way of reading it is 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 reasonable, and that's mm. something that I think a reasonable person could think. This looks like he's not making it up. Um, looks like he's presenting it as as true and as what really happened. And when in one of the there are no parables in John, but in the other synoptics, when it's a parable, you can tell it's a parable. It's set off from the rest. There's sure. you no. Know, no confusion or doubt about that. So um, why shouldn't I take it to be that way? And I think that's a story about the way you used to think that is a believable story and that has some claim on us. Hmm. Well, Lydia, we've gone round and round a little bit about the Gospel of John. So what's your goal in your newest book about the reliability of the Gospels? Can you talk a bit about that? What I tried to do in Testimonies to the Truth is to take Evidence that I had had in my other three books and some new material. There is new material in testimonies and bring it down to a point where it was very lay accessible, but also relevant to scholars. So it's it's a fine line I'm walking, but I think that I've managed that and to, to put it out there in a way that people would not be shocked by as they might be if they picked up the eye of the beholder. Now, I really hope anybody interested in the Gospel of John will pick up the eye of the beholder, but it's a little thick. And so uh, Testimonies to the Truth is thinner. And I wanted to to get that out there because this information is so important that I don't want anybody scared off from it because the book it's in is too thick. So that's mm. part of it. Um, another goal that I had was to do a little bit more with external confirmations. So Testimonies has more. It has two chapters on external confirmations of the Gospels. Mm. Another thing that I try to do there is to bring together kind of the the pros and the passion, the applicability of the Gospels with their evidence for their truthfulness in a way that that they overlap. So, for example, the character of Jesus and how um, Jesus is a um, he's God incarnate, and we can know that he knows what it is like to be a man 
and he suffers and so forth, and showing sort of simultaneously both the way that that can inform a Christian life and our love for Jesus, and also how that is evidence that they are all reliable because they're all telling about the same person in this way. And there, there is a chapter somewhat like that in The Eye of the Beholder as well, but I think I do even more of that application in Testimonies to the Truth. I also include questions, suggested study questions, suggested discussion questions, and suggested answers. So it's really overtly hmm. intended for use in a, in a group context or individual study or something like that, so that hopefully churches can use this for Sunday school classes. You could use it for a seminary class. You could use it for, I would say, even uh, if you had good high schoolers, even a good high school class all across that academic spectrum. Uh, and it would just be right there. You've got your your questions that you can use for purposes of discussion. So those are my purposes. It's called Testimonies to the Truth. And it's out there. It's out there right now. And I got some really good endorsements that I'm real happy about, too, from uh, scholars and from apologists and uh, all kinds of different people. So I'm real excited about that. And I hope people will get a copy of that as well as The Eye of the Beholder. Oh, great. We'll link to that in the show notes and we'll encourage our listeners to pick that up. Lydia, again, thank you so much for coming back with us. And, uh, you know, we, we love your work and really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Chad. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetics stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.